This is a diet of Brussels. Uh, ironically, I'm actually in Brussels, or I'm just about to leave it, in possibly the greatest metaphor for this podcast. I'm waiting for a Eurostar to go back to the UK. Um, and maybe it's fitting that I do this episode here when we are now in a position where we have a text uh, on the withdrawal agreement that will wrap up the UK's membership of the EU. What I want to do in this podcast is think a bit about the contents of that document, but without getting too lost in the detail. Uh, I want to think a bit about where we go next on this, because that's something which will be of vital interest to uh, everyone involved. And really just try and get a a sense check, because it's been uh, a long period in this tunnel of negotiations in recent weeks, uh, bits of information leaking out here and there, but not really much clarity about where we were going to go. And having said that, I think the broad direction of the negotiations has been clear for a long time. We've known that the backstop issue has been the key area of contention between the UK uh, and the EU. This desire to make sure that uh, there isn't an accidental re-imposition of border controls because of a failure to agree uh, a new relationship further down the line. Now, uh, the difficulty is largely that the UK really doesn't like having something special for the Northern Ireland because it worries that that uh, imposes uh, internal uh, differences between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK which it says that it uh, finds unacceptable. While the EU is equally uh, immovable in its desire to make sure that the current arrangements for uh, the relationship between North and South parts of the island of Ireland are kept intact under that Good Friday agreement that we've talked about before. The compromise, and it is a compromise, is that we instead will have uh, a slightly different uh, step before we get to the full backstop arrangements. So uh, if we get to the end of the transition period, so that's uh, the period uh, after the UK leaves, and we don't have uh, an agreement on a new relationship, then the UK will have a... uh, new arrangement on customs that will cover the whole of the UK uh, and will keep it uh, in line with EU customs regime uh, until such time as uh, both sides agree that uh, they don't want to have that uh, arrangement anymore because they've got finally to that new uh, relationship. Now uh, this is uh, deeply opaque to most people. Um, It's deeply opaque to a lot of academics uh, and I confess it's rather opaque to me as well. In essence what is trying to to be done, the the object of the exercise is really that protection of the border arrangements whilst also allowing the UK to say that it isn't putting Northern Ireland in a different category from the rest of the UK. 
uh, and if nothing else, that's driven by the needs to have the DUP MPs be on side when it comes to ratifying this text. And you know, they've sounded very unhappy uh, in the last 24 hours uh, about this. But largely speaking, this text uh, and this arrangement is something that was always going to be on the cards. Uh, was very much uh, where I think the, the space was going to have to be found given the, the requirements of the different parties. What has uh, been added to that are, I think, a number of important developments that we should uh, keep in mind. One is that this whole backstop arrangement is now uh, subject to a review mechanism and if both parties agree that it's no longer needed then it can be uh, wound up and stopped. Now uh, that's uh, a SOP to the UK who wanted this not to be forever in a day but equally the EU has said fine but you can't do that on a unilateral basis otherwise it's not really a backstop. So. At least we have a, a review mechanism uh, explicitly in place, which I think is, is a really useful uh, device. I, I always think review mechanisms make sense in these kinds of uh, documents, but having it specifically on that I think is, is uh, an important change. Second important change uh, that's worth noting is that there is now a possibility of extending the transition period past the end of 2020. Now. Uh, what we don't know at the moment is how long that period will be for. We know it will be a one-off fixed term, but the text that we have at the moment doesn't actually put a date in. It says uh, 20XX, so uh, it's sometime this uh, century, uh, but probably uh, not uh, as long as uh, all of that. So uh, there are other references elsewhere in the text which suggest that maybe it's a one-year extension that's being talked about. That really matters because we know that the current length of the extension period is far too short for the tasks that need to be completed, most notably the agreement of a new uh, trade deal uh, with the UK and the EU. However, with that in mind, and what we have uh, seen elsewhere, uh, even adding another year onto the 20 months period is also not enough time to do that more than likely. So we still have this real risk that we're going to get to the end of maybe 2021 where we won't know what will happen and that matters because then that means those backstop arrangements kick in. And it's not just about customs, uh, it's also about a lot of regulatory alignments uh, in different areas of standards, of uh, around goods, around services that the UK will have to be aligned with. Uh, to avoid being able to kind of uh, have a race to the bottom and, and take advantage of, of not being bound by those requirements when it brings goods into the EU. So this was really a concern of uh, countries like France and Germany who see this whole uh, arrangement as problematic because it, it does open a back door to, to the single market uh, for the UK. So. The backstop is esoteric and complicated, but it will matter and it is likely to be invoked in the system as we have it, unless we can either find a very rapid agreement on the future relationship or we can find a way of uh, extending the extension to the transition, uh, if that 
doesn't sound too uh, obtuse a formulation. However, I think taken in the round, uh, this is a very substantial document. It's clearly very detailed. It runs to almost 600 pages uh, as a piece and I think really reflects the amount of work that has gone into the negotiations. So we're seeing a lot more detail on the specific areas in relation to uh, citizens' rights, in relation to goods, in relation to the transition, the management of uh, processes, review mechanisms. All of these kind of things have been uh, fleshed out beyond what we had previously. Alongside that, uh, withdrawal agreement, we also have a much shorter political declaration which sits firmly at the smaller end of people's expectations. Uh, it, it runs, I think, to 17 pages. Um, uh, no, seven pages, sorry. Uh, which is very short, and a lot of that is just general uh, good wishes uh, and general generalities. In essence, what it says is that the, the two parties want to have a close relationship, they want to do lots of things in lots of different areas, and they will work hard to try and get that. Now, this was always the danger with this document, that, that it couldn't be nothing more than that because it was going to have to be something that uh, was going to be a, a promise uh, because you can't actually guarantee that you can find agreement on those things. Uh, you can't commit to uh, an agreement before you've had the negotiations. So from the perspective of the UK, it looks a bit brief, a bit short, a bit cursory. Uh, and certainly that's the line that the Labour Party have been taking uh, this morning. Keir Starmer saying that it's just, you know, uh, very thin and very brief, uh, whereas all of the obligations that come in that withdrawal agreement are extensive and detailed and binding and uh, problematic. So we've got documents. It's important to state at this point we don't have agreed versions of those documents. We know that the Cabinet has approved that, uh, that document as acceptable. Uh, it did that uh, apparently on a majority basis rather than by unanimity. Uh, so we know that there are internal difficulties uh, around that. But uh, we still have to get the approval of the EU27, so the other member states are looking at that text now, uh, raising queries. There are, as I've already mentioned, some areas, that, uh, some points that still need to be finalised before a text can be signed. Now, at the moment, the timeline is that uh, a week on Sunday, on the 25th of November, there will be a European Council meeting here in Brussels and there will be a signing. Uh, unless something extraordinary happens, to use Donald Tusk's uh, wording in his uh, tweet about that this morning. Now, uh, what extraordinary things might happen? Well, uh, there might be a number of things, and almost all of them are to be found uh, at the other end of my train journey rather than at this end. The text has gone public because the negotiators feel that it's in an acceptable enough state that it is worth pursuing uh, for signature and for ratification. Uh, so we have to assume that uh, the Commission is going to recommend this to the 27. Uh, there's no particular reason to think that they won't accept 
that. So uh, it's unlikely that there will be substantial problems. There might be some minor uh, uh, typos and, and clarifications that might come through from the EU side. But much bigger issue is the UK, which was been clear for a very long time. The approval of cabinet is one thing, but we've already had this morning one resignation uh, of a junior minister. Uh, if we have more resignations, uh, and as somebody was pointing out, I remember after Chequers that it wasn't straight away that people resigned. It was in uh, the 24, 48 hours uh, following the end of the meeting. So we're still in the hot phase of this. But uh, if we do have senior members of the cabinet resigning, uh, then we potentially have a problem because uh, uh, that will really uh, make it much more difficult for Theresa May to sell it to her party. And that party has already said that it is very unhappy with this text. Uh, the European Reform Group uh, are talking about uh, switching from uh, disapproving of the policy to disapproving of the person with the policy. So some efforts to encourage people to put in letters to the 1922 committee to try and trigger a motion of no confidence. If that happens, uh, and we don't know because the only person who does know how many letters have been received is the chairman and he's not talking, is that uh, we're not really sure how that motion of confidence would go. If Theresa May has one called against her, that already demonstrates that there are at least uh, 48 MPs on her party who have little enough confidence in her that they would uh, try to remove her from uh, her position, which suggests that they are not willing to vote in uh, support of the withdrawal agreement, which means that the government majority is more than wiped out and you'd have to make very substantial inroads into other opposition parties to uh, have any chance of approving this. But by the same token, what's not clear is whether there are a majority of Conservative MPs, so 160-odd, who would be prepared to vote against Theresa May. In which case, if she survives that motion of confidence, then she can't have another one called against her for another year, which is a lifetime in this particular context, which means that the party will be stuck with her and by extension will be stuck with the deal that uh, she has put together. For practical purposes, I think we have to assume that nobody really knows what is going on at this stage. Uh, Labour have said that they will vote against this text. Uh, I would expect that most of the other opposition parties will be inclined to do the same, uh, not least because if uh, Theresa May tries to make the vote itself uh, a motion of confidence in the government, then there is potentially scope for early elections. Uh, which might open up a whole new world of uh, electoral fun and uh, fun in relation to the Brexit process. So there's a temptation to do that, but at the same time there's real concern, I think, in many parts of our Parliament that if this deal doesn't get approved, then there isn't sufficient certainty about what the next step will be to be able to avoid a no deal. 
Now, this is partly Theresa May's intention, that she raises the peril and says either this deal or no deal are your two options. Uh, and so I think there's still a lot of exploring going on about whether it's possible to actually uh, avoid uh, that binary situation and find another path. However, uh, that doesn't mean that this is all going to stop if Theresa May gets kicked out, uh, because I think Labour are still nowhere near that kind of position when it comes to uh, either stopping Brexit, having a second referendum, doing anything that really changes the, the, the pattern of where we, we've got to so far. So I think the working assumption should be that even a new Labour-led government wouldn't actually lead to a substantial change in policy at this stage. Uh, where there are differences in uh, policy have been more about the future relationship, but that doesn't change the parameters of the withdrawal agreement which then really raises the question of why vote against it in the first place. Well, if it gets you into power, maybe that's your answer. So at the moment, we are in a moment of high political peril, high political uncertainty in the UK. And as a consequence, we have a lot of uncertainty here in Brussels, that uh, the Commission really doesn't know how this will play out. It has its concerns. Uh, on this front. So I think as uh, I travel back, maybe we'll hear more today from uh, the various people and we'll find out where this all goes. Till then, uh, and I will be back soon uh, to talk more about what's going on, uh, I shall wish you au revoir. <laughs>